Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Momentous Elite Sleep. Let's talk about sleep support. So I think everyone's obsessed with show me the pill where I can just go unconscious and then get all of my REM sleep and not interrupt or not become addicted to some sleep drug. Believe it or not, that exists. When you need temporary sleep support, Elite Sleep is the way. So this stuff is scientifically designed to help athletes fall asleep faster, achieve higher quality sleep, which of course means that they recover better and have better performance. Yeah, and let's recognize that ideally we're not taking anything to sleep. We have a good routine, but then all you have to do is go travel, have a little stress in your life. Gosh forbid you ever have a child or something else going on. Easy to get your sleep disrupted, and sometimes you need to lean on a little bit. And the best thing you can do is to lean on green supplements that don't, when I mean green, I mean it's like not sketchy and not illegal, and that you can have these supplements in your life temporarily restore your sleep without uh, becoming addicted to them. What I like about it is it helps reduce nighttime anxiety, of Ooh. which I am a sufferer, helps you fall asleep more quickly, and then improve your circadian rhythm so that you have higher quality sleep, you which is what heard, we're all looking for. You've probably heard all of these ingredients, B6, valerian root, tart cherry, L-theanine, and melatonin. And so the idea here, man, this stuff works. Look at the reviews. The kids at Momentus have done it again. Check out Elite Sleep when you need sleep support. Go to thereadystate.com slash momentous and use code TRS for 20% off your first purchase. This episode of The Ready State is brought to you by Virtual Mobility Coach. This may sound crazy, but last year, I kind of tried to clone my husband. Awesome. Only kind of, though. You see, Kelly gets dozens of requests every day for help. And even though he wants to give everyone his personal attention, there just aren't enough hours in the day. So I typed in how to clone a human being into Google. Just kidding, but in seriousness, what we did do was create our virtual mobility coach platform. It's like having a virtual Kelly Star ad in your pocket. Which obviously everyone needs. I mean, that's right. I personally create over 600 mobility protocols for the virtual mobility coach. So the platform can help you with almost any movement problem imaginable. For example, let's say you're in pain. The VMC will show you a diagram of the human body. All you have to do is click where it hurts. And from there, we'll serve you up a customized pain prescription we call Mobility RX. The virtual mobility coach can also help you warm up and cool down when you exercise. Every day, we provide fresh pre- and post-workout mobilizations for more than four dozen sports and movements. Plus, on your days off, we even have a video called Daily Maintenance to help you relax and recover so you can get back 100% in record time. And best of all, right now, you can try Virtual Mobility Coach free for two whole weeks, so you can check out everything it has to offer without paying a penny. Claim your free 14-day trial of Virtual Mobility Coach now. Go to thereadystate.com slash free trial. That's thereadystate.com slash free trial. And we'll see you inside. On this episode of the Ready State Podcast, we are thrilled to bring you Dave Spitz of California Strength. Dave happens to also be the CEO and founder of CalStrength. He holds recognition as one of the few USA weightlifting senior international coaches in the country. CalStrength has dominated the United States Olympic weightlifting landscape, producing numerous national team titles, American records, and even earning medal recognition on the international stage, as well as the Olympics. Dave says his life's work is to bring the U.S. back to relevance in weightlifting, but secretly I know it's about getting me back to my 300-pound power clean after my knee surgery. Dave is a great friend of mine and one of my, in my inner circle of coaches that I call all the time when I have big ideas and bad ideas. Please, Enjoy our conversation. Dave, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. Thank you. 
<laughs> Did we do it right that time? Uh, as always, my friend, great to see you. Can't wait to hear what you've got going on. You and I have been friends for a minute. We've interacted as coaches and friends and fathers for over a decade. Will you just tell a little bit, tell everyone who's not familiar with the Dave Spitz story, which is a lifetime epic that shows on Sundays. What are you <laughs> doing now? And like, what is your day job currently? My day job currently consists of running a business. So both brick and mortar and an online business. We have two facilities that specialize in sports performance and have a special bias towards Olympic weightlifting. And then we've recently partnered with a new entity called The Club, which is down here in Los Gatos. And their mandate is to basically pull in every sort of cool studio experience from like a cycling to Pilates to hot yoga to ordinary yoga to the CrossFit box to uh, kind of the traditional bodybuilding Globo Gym, tie it all together in like this country club environment. And it is, uh, it is so fun. So we actually have three businesses going on right now. And I'm supposed to uh, be running those, working online, and then uh, also coaching athletes. So you are in what I think is a new space that has a lot of cool features in it, like a cafe. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And that, you know, you're in a soundproof box among many other cool things going on there. You have to uh, lean in to your success a little bit. And uh, uh, it was important to build a cafe that served beer, wine, and hard kombucha. Those things are uh, become essential as I get older. I'm 45 now. So yeah, that's the cafe was really important. We have this beautiful pool deck and a bar outside as well. So when you guys come down, we can chill in the pool, the hot tub, the sauna, the cold plunge, you name it. So I just want to say we um, have spent quite a bit of time in Germany because that's where Kelly grew up. And we have trained at this one gym in Garmisch in particular and got to know the owner a little bit. And he basically said in Germany, no gym can survive. Like nobody will become a member of a gym unless there's a bar and cafe physically attached to it. Now, and he was like, no, no, no. It's not enough if there's a bar right next door to the gym. Like it literally needs to be in the gym because like that's part of the culture. Like you work out and then you go socialize or have a beer or a glass of wine or a cappuccino or something like that. It's like so integral to their like gym culture that he's like, oh no, no, every gym has to have a cafe. Yeah, I don't know how we ever lived without one. Like you come here in the morning, get your coffee and then you eat your breakfast burrito and then, you know, you get your day going. And then like, you know, at the end of the day, after you get out of the hot yoga studio, you just cruise over to the bar and grab a beer and sit, sit around and talk to other members. Yeah, it's a huge like driver of the social culture here. You have done such a good job for so long. If people go in back to the old school Cal strength days, it has been for a minute where so many of us vicariously have wanted to be in your gym, live in your gym, just through the visible, tangible expressions of your gym culture. Changing out of that grittiness, because it was certainly a, could be conceived as gritty. I mean, your facility, the second facility, last facility I was in was beautiful. But have you found that you've lost any of that culture or is this the facility, does it make the culture tighter because you already have this a ethos about who you are and what's going on and people expect to have a little bit more polished experience now. Yeah. I think that the grittiness is not what drives the success. So it's the expectations. It's the commitment to intelligently designed 
well-executed programming. It's a commitment to understanding movement and being able to articulate movement. And then just making sure that you lead from the front. And so what I found is the more I give to my athletes, you know, the better they do. They don't have to have this austere lifestyle in order to be successful. And I think that that was also the case for coaches. You know, a long time ago was like, unless you were willing to like die for your beliefs in, you know, whatever it was, Olympic lifting or CrossFit coaching, whatever it was, like you almost had to, you had to be poor. And that's just, I don't, I don't think it's the case anymore. I uh, want to say I appreciate that very much. I just ran into you in person in real life not too long ago at the Arnold Sports Festival. And I'm just going to put loosely sports because definitely were some sports going on and there were definitely some strange activities that involved, you know, chain mail and slapping. So, they're you know, part of physical culture. I get it. And that was just in the warm up room of the weightlifting. I know. It's true. Will you describe what you were doing there? What happened to USAW and sort of where we are? I know you on many levels from a sports performance coach. People can come train with you. I know that you run an NFL Combine Prep School Academy for superstars going to the NFL and other sports. And I also know you as an Olympic lifting coach. Tell us what you were doing at the Arnold and sort of set that stage for us because I think that's really interesting. Yeah, so I flew in hot into Columbus to coach two athletes, three athletes, sorry, that were in the uh, rogue session of the Arnold, which, you know, is one of the invited sessions. Which was right across from our booth, by the way. It was so fun to be, I could sit and do my job. It was epic. Watching you with the cameras, like film all the session, it was great. My commitment to the Olympic lifts is, is unwavering. It's definitely changed a little bit over the years in terms of, you know, going to from educator and kind of motivational, inspirational type, of type personality to, okay, we've experienced what it's like to take an athlete from zero to the Olympics. And we were fortunate, I was fortunate enough to coach Wes Kitts to uh, an eighth place finish at the Olympics this last year, who was the coolest, most difficult, most intense experiences that I've ever had as a coach. And so, like you were saying, I flew in from the combine in Indianapolis, where we had athletes participating in the 40-yard dash and the bench press and the vertical leap and the broad and a couple of lateral drills and their on-field position work, an event where you have an opportunity to kind of quantify athletic ability for these guys that are making decisions on where to draft these players. So flying in from that to the Olympic lifts and being thrust into the rogue session at the Arnold, it was like surreal. I mean, you're going from like a very organized, structured, like professional environment to, like you said, Russian slap fighting, chain mail, jump rope and Olympic lifting in front of like a thousand people in this stage where with where clocks were malfunctioning and and you couldn't hear an announcer. And it was just like this whole like three ring circus. Uh, It was still a lot of fun. I think the athlete that I feel most confident in right now, kind of taking Wes's place for the next quad is a a kid named Nathan Dameron, who's the number one ranked weightlifter in the country today. So it was awesome to see him kind of thrive in that, in that environment and make all six lifts and, and rise to that occasion and be appreciated on that scale was really cool. I want to dive into this a little bit more, but one of the things that I was able to do is walk around the corner and look between the curtains that separated the stage from the prep area. So I could watch Dave watch his athletes. And then I could move my head on the other side, watch the lift, and then watch Dave's reaction to the lift. And it was so great because 
I got to be a fan and a fanboy. And then I'd be like, coach, what's coach doing? Watch the coach. How's he? How's interpreting? And it was just like, if I could absolutely split screen my life so many times like that in so many situations, that was really great. I have a video of me I, I should put up of watching you watch your lifter. It was, it was fantastic. I've got like 40 follow-up questions about Olympics and lifting and a bunch of other things, but I do want to go back in time because I would love if you could tell us, it's sort of a two-part question. I know you yourself have a pretty rich athletic background including playing a sport in college. So I was hoping you could tell us about that. And then number two, I also know before you became a performance coach, entrepreneur, Olympic weightlifting coach, Olympic coach, and the 47 other titles you currently have that you actually had a totally different profession as well. So tell us a little bit about those two things before we get back into present day awesomeness. And I'm glad you did that because I want to I want people to understand you're sort of in terms of coaching success right now, you're very much at the top of the pile in terms of what a coach is able to do and the impact a coach like you can have across multiple sports. So just I'm going to put you in my kind of tier one coaches. But you didn't just end up and set out to be here, as Juliet said. Well, yep, that's true. I was an athlete in college. I was a track and field athlete. I threw the shot put and the hammer and the discus. And it was a lifelong dream to access the Olympics. So from a young age, like I remember vividly, like the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, Korea, you know, like being on vacation in Hawaii with with my family and being glued to the television set, not wanting to pull myself away. And so ever since then, I've just been like, whatever I can do to access this Olympic movement is what I had to do. And so that took me to USC uh, through And then at the end of my college career, I felt like there was a lot of chicken on the bone. There was, I didn't really accomplish what I set out to. I'd made a world junior team, but the senior teams completely escaped me. And I kind of lost sight of of that dream. And I graduated, didn't come close to making the Olympic games in 2000. And I said, screw it, I'm gonna go and get to work. So uh, initially I was, this is like the life that is Dave Spitz. It's just kind of get ping ponged around and I'm very reactive. It's, this is not all well planned out. Like some people just think this is. This is <laughs> no, looking backwards, it, you're like, it's like you're a genius. I'm going to learn some management skills so I can run this lifting empire in the future. Yeah. I'm going to write a book, just the art of being reactive. <laughs> <laughs> reactive training. I think it's already exists. Yeah. So I started an oil and gas company uh, out of college with a couple of buddies that were older. One of my friends, his dad was big into energy and had done some big privatization projects in Kazakhstan. And they came back and wanted to start a a redevelopment company in the LA basin, like basically going into old mature fields that were conventionally drilled in the fifties and sixties and recompleting them and doing some different things to extract more from the ground than what was currently being produced. And a hundred times out of a hundred, this is a failure. Like I have no idea how we made this successful, but somehow, some way, like we were the morons that stumbled on a well that was grossly undervalued and we made money. And then we continued to parlay investment after investment until we listed our company on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And we all had like this unbelievable liquidity event. And so that led me to finance. And so I started in like wealth management, trying to figure out how to manage my own concentrated stock positions and my friends. And then so years went by and then 2004 rolled around. The games were in Athens. And I was like, holy smokes, I've got all this money. I've got my Rolex. I've got my my Porsche. I've got my house. Everything I thought I really wanted, I had lined up and slayed. And then I was still wanting. I was still unfulfilled. 
And the Olympics just kind of like came roaring back into my soul. It was like, oh my gosh, I have to do this. I forgot. This is what I was all about. This is when I was happiness and, and most driven, like when I was thinking about being a part of the Olympic movement. By the way, I've never heard anyone use liquidity event and Olympics or Olympic athlete or Olympic experience in the same <laughs> sentence ever in the history of the world. So congratulations on being a pioneer there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me make it and then go back and do the, the really hard stuff. <laughs> so I, uh, I did what any rational person would. I picked up a barbell and I called a coach and I was like, you know, I was a good thrower, but I think I could be a great weightlifter. This is the irrational optimism that is Dave Spence, right? Like there's no... In what world could I reasonably be 28 years old, pick up a barbell, and, and somehow access the Olympics? But it didn't stop me. No, the 1920s. That's That could happen in the 1920s. Yeah, maybe, yeah. I uh, But I started training. I got a little better and a little better. And I met this guy named Alex Krychev, and he was uh, a silver medalist in the Olympics in the 1972 Games. And his coach... His name was Ivan Abajiev. And so this Bulgarian system of training that we still hear so much about today, Ivan Abajiev was the architect of that. So this, you know, principle of like super specialization, super high intensity training, you know, take 20 guys and train them in this capacity. And maybe, you know, one or two of them rise to the top and become champions. And so we went over to Bulgaria and I started training with Abajiev in Bulgaria and then I decided that it would be prudent to start a nonprofit. So I started a 501c3, I funded it, and I brought Abjiv over to America. And I included with that package a couple Bulgarian athletes, because this is what normal people do. Can I, can I just it? interrupt you to say, like, this is actually a really bonkers story, because it's like, usually the Olympic experience is like, I am making $5,000 a year, I have to live at home with my parents or work at Home Depot. And meanwhile, you're like, You've had this liquidity event. You have money to burn. You're like, I'm just going to start a 501c3 to bring my coach over. Like, this is crazy. Like, it's amazing. It, I want to say that maybe <laughs> Olympic lifting in the United States wasn't very progressive yeah. at that time or well well developed. It was dead. It was like there was nobody was an Olympic weightlifter or nobody knew anything about it. So here I am. I rent this house. We turn a four-car garage into a training hall. I have these guys with me. I'm feeding them, clothing them. And it's very difficult to have Bulgarians. I don't know if you've ever had any as... As, <laughs> as like a pet? Just for everyone Kelly, to understand, you know what? if you've ever done a Bulgarian split squat and you hate that movement, just magnify that. Just magnify it. The toilets are always clogged. <laughs> Kelly really is obsessed with getting a raccoon as a pet, but maybe he needs a Bulgarian. Same level of difficulty. You probably start with a Bulgarian then move to a raccoon. <laughs> <laughs> Both of them are going to dig through the trash and make a huge mess. Sorry to all you Bulgarians out there. I'm just kidding, of course. Anyway, we uh, we went through this whole um, experiment of trying to export the Bulgarian style of training. And we brought over some American athletes, too, to, to kind of like suffer with me. So like Donnie Shankle and Max Ada and James Moser, a couple of these older guys. Um, and uh, we failed miserably. It was like the worst money I've ever spent in so many respects. But I walked away with one really valuable lesson being learned, and that is that success is situational. And I should have known from the onset that you could never take Abajiev out of Bulgaria, take a man out of his culture and his epoch of time where he was successful, plug him into the United States current day, and expect for his methods to have anything but abysmal failure. 
right? So like he didn't have the motivation structure that was required to train like that. He didn't have the breadth of athletes. He didn't have the access to the drugs. He didn't have all of these things that ultimately, you know, made Bulgaria such a unique power. And so, you know, we all eventually got hurt or didn't progress. And so I had to go back to the drawing board. So after failing to make the 2008 games, there was one bright spot in that whole whole experience. And that was, I learned the difference between regret and disappointment. So while I regretted deeply the first Olympic experience, trying to get there in track and field and kind of just not doing what I was supposed to do to make that thing happen, with Olympic weightlifting, I did everything I could do. I invested all this money. I brought, I did all these unnatural acts to make this thing happen. And so at the end of the day, I was very disappointed in the outcome, but regret lingers, disappointment fades. And so I didn't regret the journey at all. In fact, I wanted to continue to get into it and to, to help other athletes kind of learn these lessons and maybe build a system where American athletes could actually have success. And so that was the rise of, of California strength. One of the things I want to ask you about is the timeline of this, right? Because you sort of decide you want to go into Olympic weightlifting in 2004, Athens. And so I'm assuming you're training between 2004 and 2008. And interestingly, that's sort of like when CrossFit really started to rise. And again, you will do a way better job of explaining this that, than I will. But that's when like normal people started Olympic style weightlifting, and I'm saying style because like what I do isn't really Olympic weightlifting, but maybe like sort really. of like it. <clears throat> That's not but, true at all. But anyway, I just, I wonder, you know, like as, as you were training with the Bulgarians and doing this thing, are you at that time also becoming aware of this phenomenon of people all of a sudden becoming USA weightlifting certified and all of a sudden all these coaches taking on this interest in weightlifting? Like, are you kind of watching this happen like in parallel with your own training? A hundred percent. And so, well, I think I was done training, you know, by 2008, the Olympics had come and gone. I didn't qualify. 2009, I walked away from all of my day jobs at my finance companies and I worked uh, to build CalStrength full time. And right about that time, that 2008, 2009 is where you started hearing the word CrossFit used a lot more. And oddly enough, we decided that we would film some stuff and throw it on YouTube just to see if anybody was interested and to maybe use it as a motivation structure to help our athletes kind of make big attempts when there's an empty gym, you know, sometimes it's difficult to get your juices going for an attempt, but if you are filming it and then threatening to put it on the internet, it tends to have a good stimulus effect. And so we were doing that and all of a sudden people started watching it and asking, hey, you know, how do you do this stuff? And so we started doing educational videos. And I think that's close to the time where we started, I think, a dialogue, Kel. It was wild. So the rise of CrossFit, the rise of us putting stuff on the internet and the, the completion of my journey kind of all just we created this nexus of opportunity and CalStrength was born out of it. It was so fun for me to be around early with Glenn Penley and you and Donnie Shankle and John North and that crew just being exposed to that crew and watching sort of the like a lot. If you could watch what's happening in a test tube when there's a crazy reaction happening, there was something very, very special and magical in that early phase. We weren't as professional as we were. And you were so far out there, as you say, and I think you bring it up. I want to bring it back. At the Arnold this year, there were 1,800 Olympic lifters. People were competing. There were so many Olympic lifters, more than any other sport, dwarfed all the other sports. They had to move to the Cow Palace. Entire different thing. Can you talk about that rise a little bit and what you've seen in terms of the professionalism and just even the access? Because 
both my girls speak Olympic with me. It is wild. I mean, for the longest time, it was like, oh, you're a weightlifter. How much do you bench? Like that was always, that was always the, the follow-up question. And so, you know, to see the sport grow and to see the Olympic lifts be used as tools across so many other different domains from fitness to sports performance, I never, ever expected this, not in my lifetime. And it was one of the early mandates that I had for Cal Strength is, hey, we need to get the word out. Like you want to improve your mobility, flexibility, kinesthetic awareness, force production, force absorption principles, all these things that like we talk about as athletes, we can accomplish a lot with these lifts if they're taught properly. And now we get to this point and the Olympic lifts have grown so big and are so ubiquitous in all these forms of training that now you're starting to see people like actually build kind of a narrative to speak out against them. Like <laughs> you can actually demonize the Olympic lifts, you know, to create a dialogue for yourself to, 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 to espouse your training principles, like how far we've come. It's just unbelievable. The internet is amazing, isn't it? Do you think that, uh, here we go, watch this first like drama unleashed on the internet. Is the trap bar the slant board of the barbell world? <laughs> it could be. It very well could be. <laughs> All the time, everyone's like, you can't really use Olympic lifting to develop power. I'm like, are you sure? Are you sure about that? Right? The efficiency, the coordination. I'm just kidding, everyone. I love my trap bar just as much as my my regular barbell. But Do we uh, own a trap bar? Yeah, we have two in our side yard. Despite my owning a gym for almost 20 years and being involved in this space, sometimes I'm like, what's a trap bar? You know that bar I like to pull really heavy on because it makes me look good? That's the bar. Oh, the deadlifting thing? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's got the neutral grips. Like you stand in the middle of it. It's very comfortable. It's like the Lazy Boy recliner. Well, it is because you can roll it up on those little stilts and then put the weights on and off, which, I mean, honestly, for me, like, I would be way... I've always told Kelly, I'm like, look, if I could just have a weight Sherpa, I would be, like, way more into weightlifting because it's like, I don't really want to put my weights on and off all the time. And that does help. So, so I get it. I know what the trap bar is. Something that uh, has been fun is to watch your coaches and athletes go off and become, just continue to propagate the love. That's been great. One of the things that we've seen is, and I have, the longer I coach and I'm around coaches, I believe that speed is actually a safety mechanism. That when we ask athletes to move quickly, their bodies either protect them by being able to get into good positions or they don't. And sometimes when we ask athletes to just grind under heavy loads and low impulse, they can get away with anything, but you can't get away with anything when you're moving quickly. What I'm leading to is we've seen people become very confused about should my children be Olympic lifting? And Caroline's an Olympic lifting, was an Olympic lifting club up here before water polo. And the coach was like, is it okay if she snatches? And I was like, she's here to snatch. Let me be clear. Like if she's not snatching regularly or even at least muscle snatching every day, we're, we're, I'm going to burn this place down, you know? And, but some of the people around really didn't understand sort of what we get when we ask in terms of the coordination and efficiency out of the Olympic lifting, not even just the loads. Yeah, hundred percent. Right. I mean, my kids are now six, eight and 10 and they've been Olympic lifting all since they could walk. They've been fooling around with dowels or aluminum bars. I mean, like we've always said, you know, with these, the kids, I think the misconception is Olympic lifting means you're lifting heavy. And that is for us, obviously not the case. We know that we use resistance that challenges positions. And that's always been the guiding principle when working with the kids. And I think one of the earliest principles of neuroscience as it pertains to movement is the faster a movement is, the less precise it becomes. And so if we can 
create a roadmap for success to get these kids to move quickly through these complex positions, boy, does it give them a great mastery of their body in a very short amount of time. You see that you see the coordination overlap in all these other disciplines too. It's remarkable. People probably have heard of the functional movement screen and probably the most salient piece of that is the overhead squat with the PVC pipe, which will, we won't even say that that's an overhead squat because you can origami yourself down while you're on these, while your heels are elevated and do weird things. But that's one of those things where if you can't even perform an overhead squat, you're going to have a really difficult time Olympic lifting. You know what I mean? Like we're using this, the entree into this skill as an assessment for people. And yet it is like saying, well, you don't know how to hold a pen. It's going to be very difficult to write an essay, right? Yeah. And that's one of the, the interesting things too, not just coaching kids, but like you said, you spouted off the 1800 weightlifters. We in the United States are teaching athletes of all ages and abilities to perform these movements. And so what I've always admired about CrossFit is that it introduced these movements to these people who traditionally would have no business doing them, no real need to do them. And so it sends you on this journey of self-exploration and experimentation where it's like, oh, I can't do an overhead squat. My ankles are rock. There's no dorsiflexion. How do I create mobility in my ankles? Oh, my hips. How do I create mobility in my hips? Oh, my thoracic stability. How do I do a 360 degree core brace? And so it gives you these opportunities to have these really cool self-experimentation plays just in an effort to create the movements properly. So I just want to go back and talk more about the Tokyo Olympics. And it's sort of like a 10-part question, but what was that experience like? Obviously, it was the weird Olympics because of COVID. Did coaching a successful athlete at the Olympics scratch like a little bit of that lifelong itch to go to the Olympics, right? Like, was that, was being a, because I know Kelly, actually, it's like one of his dreams to once in his life go and as a coach to the Olympics, like did that sort of like COVID shut me down? No personal coaches. But did that sort of fill some of that like lifelong, like since childhood desire to be like involved in the Olympics in some way? No, no question. I mean, just you're a part of the movement. You feel like you're a part of the movement and with a sport like weightlifting, you know, you are, you're in the fire with your athlete every single day. And you're not only participating in the event, you are actively, you know, making calls and you are actively guiding the entire flow of the competition. And so it absolutely did. I never expected in my wildest dreams for the Olympics to be that emotionally charged, that rewarding, that satisfying, that just absolutely difficult. I mean, it was almost inexplicable for somebody who hasn't been a part of it. So Kelly, your desire to do that is I can, all I can tell you is it's worth it. Like whatever you have to do, get to that point because it is absolutely worth it. Despite all of those things. I can massage. <laughs> Kelly's I can, like, I can I lift can, heavy I can things. Get coffee. I can hold clipboards. I'm someone's going to, I had, I think four different sports at Tokyo and I was like, and I just got shut out. You know, I couldn't go. I'm so bummed. Well, we'll go to Paris together. How about that? Done. Oh, we already definitely want to go to Paris. Let's go to Paris. Yeah. Okay. Done. Done. One of the Check. things that you um, have the view on is you've got this view as athlete, as innovator coach, as business person, trying to help people get stronger through the barbell wad, which is a great barbell strength, barbell centric strength programming for people to add into whatever they're doing. One of my favorite programs on the planet. And you also have this very high-end piece where you're putting your money where your mouth is. 
where are the big holes in athletic development right now? And are those compounded by environment or is it coaching or is the internet getting too confusing or are kids not being exposed early enough? What are you seeing sort of from the top of the mountain? Because you've had such varied experiences. What are your current feelings about the sort of the state of athletic development? That's such a great question. And the answer is a couple of the things that you, you've touched on. I think early exposure to a systematic progression. So my kids all have an athletic life plan. Now, I don't ever care if they actually participate in a sport at a high level, but they're going to be athletes because whether... An athletic life plan. They have an athletic life plan. And so from nine months old, this spreadsheet has been built... I know when and what we're going to try and put these kids through. So, you know, and all things start and stop in the pool. So at nine months old, they're swimming. And by four, they're on swim team. It starts 18 months in gymnastics and they're, they're developing, you know, that basic core strength and kinesthetic awareness, understanding how to absorb force properly, balance, all that good stuff. At about two years, they start with their soccer. So everything bilaterally symmetrical all the way up until I feel like we've created a base of athleticism that's sufficient to start being asymmetrical in, in some of their patterning. So things like baseball or lacrosse. And so just having a roadmap to success and starting them early, not being afraid to actually expose kids to the breadth of these bilaterally symmetrical sports at a young age and hold them accountable for their performance. So you know, with my kids, we talk about sounds harsh, but it really is. It's brought us all so much closer. We talk about you either win or you learn. So if you didn't pop your time today in your freestyle, why? What can we take from that objective truth that is stamped on the scoreboard? What can we talk about in terms of your sleep that night or what you ate before your race or what you did in practice this week or your mental state? And so it gives you an opportunity to, to kind of talk through a lot of these different teachable moments but above and beyond that, I think that early specialization is also a huge problem. So everybody still seems to want to come to us and, and want sports-specific training for their 11, 12, 13-year-old, which is like, okay, so now you're in year-round soccer, you're in year-round baseball, and now you want sports specificity in your training. Creating a base of athleticism is what we need to be talking about here so that it'll give you the opportunity, you grow your base, you have the opportunity to compete at higher and higher levels because you're gonna be fast enough, durable enough, strong enough, all of the things that we know to be true. Do you just put a, a different color magnet? Like this is the soccer magnet front squat and now you're doing the, the baseball front squat and now you're, this is the swimming sw front squat? It's unbelievable. Like as we get older, you know, and you, and you get more proficient, like there is room for arm care and there is room for some sports specificity at the end of your, of your workout with, with respect to your accessory lifts. And there is some, you know, customization in terms of the seasonality of your sport. But ultimately, like what most of these young people, and this is where I see the holes. That was your initial question. Where, where do I see the holes in athletic development? It's from the nine month old to the 10 year old where I see huge opportunities to have really productive conversations and to really drive the concept of athleticism in these kids. And then irrespective of what you do, whether you're a mountain climber or a kayaker or a volleyball player or a surfer or, or a football player, like you have the tools to go and become the best version of that thing. Where do you think the whole like sports specific training miss 
came about because it still is very pervasive. You know, people talk to us like, oh, I, I need to get my kid into strength training because they're going to play in college. Where can I get sports specific volleyball training? Like people have asked us that question like a thousand times. And we spend our entire conversation trying to demystify that and just and, say, hey, your and kid one needs of the to places lift a weight. Is, is the kids are starting to look at colleges. Colleges are asking questions like, what is your front squat? How much can you push press? And parents are like, what's a push press? They don't even have that basic yeah. language. And I'm like, oh, it's no problem. In the next three months, your, your senior who is going to go out is going to have to learn all of this movement language. Good luck. Yeah, I think just the, the sports specific, I think it comes from two places. Number one, the parents desire to not screw up this athlete and this trajectory that they're on. And then the other, you have some some more nefarious actors that are actually profiting from oh, you have to be doing this sports-specific program. You don't want to go and snatch if you are a pitcher because, you know, so there's there's probably uh, those two forces at work. I want to just ask one more question about the Olympics and then connect it to our own watching of our kids play sports. But what was it like for you as an athlete who has competed at a very high level to then be like in a chair or, you know, I don't know if you were watching on Zoom or how it was working for the Tokyo Olympics, but like, how did that feel for you to sit there and not be the one doing it and coaching it? And I, I would say like, sometimes we feel that just watching our kids, like we're both so competitive that we're like dying on the inside as spectators. I would crush those 13 year old girls in the pool. If I drop my body in right now, I'd just no. destroy them. No, you would just sink to the bottom and then that would be the end. For the first 10 seconds, I would crush them. Yeah. Before I We'd need to give you like a little floaty ring and then you could crush also them. Also true. There's a Dead <laughs> Kennedy song called Crush Little Kids. There you go. I get so <laughs> passionate about, you know, being there with them. You know, I'm so connected to the athlete with every lift. I mean, I think there's a big difference between the team sport environment and being an individual sport participant in the Olympics. I mean, those two things, this is where you see a lot of like these collapses. Like, I mean, it was hard to watch Michaela Schifrin in the Olympics. It was very difficult to watch Simone Biles in the Olympics. Like these ultra mega superstars essentially just collapse under the weight of the pressure that is the Olympic Games. And I can tell you, when I say it's emotional, you're getting text messages from people five, six, 10 times a day in these, in the weeks leading up to it. And a lot of them are just very encouraging, but some of them are just so heartfelt and so thoughtful and so meaning that like, I know that Wes and I were both reduced to tears like multiple times leading into that day. And so, you know, the, just the, the outpouring of the love, the support, you know, it's amazing, but it's also a source of pressure. And then I would say that the one thing that I don't think either of us were experiences were, were prepared for is the come off when you get back from the Olympic games, it is literally like, I mean, they talk about like astronaut reentry syndrome. This is like, I've just been through the most authentic, amazing, deeply moving experience I could possibly be a part of. And then you're just thrust back into normal life. And it's like, okay, the Olympics are over. I'm like, wait, I need to download some of this to somebody. Like I'm so depressed. I don't even know what to do with myself. And so Nobody really prepared me for that. And that was very real. But I am 100% committed, like I said, to getting back there with at least Nathan, if not Wesley, again, if he wants to make another run. You know, we have another young lady, Madison Pinnell, that I think has a, a ton of potential to either access 2024 or 2028. Really fun to watch her lift in person. It was very fun to watch her lift. 
So I read that your life's work is bringing relevance to U.S. weightlifting. Do you feel that you have already achieved your life's work? Because it seems like there's relevance in U.S. weightlifting. I mean, you know, can you speak to that? I think that's such a great question. I mean, that, it's one of those questions that I was like, from the outside looking in, of course, USA weightlifting is now relevant. We have all these athletes participating in the sport. We, you know, it's grown by orders of magnitude. We have all of these different modalities uh, that are using the Olympic lifts to achieve their their goals. But being at the Olympics, I had always said that if we could just get an American athlete, especially, you know, not to take away from the other weight categories, but in a prestige weight class, like a heavyweight, you know, which is what Wes was, 109 kilos, you know, you're, you're going up against the really strong all the Europeans, all the, you know, some of the Middle Eastern countries. You're, Masha's the best weightlifter in the world. Yeah. In that class. You're fighting against the best of the best. And I always said, if we go there and finish 10th, you know what? That's enough. We might get a medal in the mail one day, which you see they're still popping people, you know, from 2012 and 2014. People are still like, you know, there's potential. Medal in the mail. That's like a hashtag. Medal in the mail. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But once I got there and we finished eighth, and I realized the asymmetry of the competition, you know, it's almost inhumane to make an athlete like Wes do the type of training that I forced him to do for five years, right? Because it's a quad plus one. So imagine running a marathon and sprinting the last mile, like first marathon, I'm sprinting now, crossing the finish line and then say, being asked like, oh, guess what? Six more miles. There's six more. You got to continue. So body breaking down, heart and soul breaking down, COVID all around you. I mean, very difficult stuff. But to get there and then see the asymmetry of the competition, to see the weightlifters that actually were on the medal stand and the different game that they were playing relative to what we were playing was very disheartening. So when I say relevance, yes, we're relevant, but are we still completely we're so far from obtaining a medal in a prestige class where other countries actually care it was very disheartening i want to say that one of the maybe that you can reframe sort of the goal of being relevant in that coaches like you and travis mash who i love very much all the incredible other chad vaughn the other coaches i really like and respect so much you have put olympic lifting in squarely into the language of athletic training where People, we're going to play a quick game of true and false. Can I Olympic lift with a barbell? True. Can I Olympic lift with a dumbbell? True. Can I use Olympic-style Olympic lifting with a sandbag where I can get the push press and some of those? So I can choose some of those pieces. So that piece of the lexicon of being able to front squat and safety and feeling like that and not feeling like everything has to be a split squat or everything has to be trap bar that we can put a barbell into their hands. You already have changed foundationally, I think, training in the United States. I think we have a long road to go, but I think one of the back pieces that you guys aren't appreciating is the vacuum you're creating by sort of moving forward on this high level. You're pulling on all these people along amateur in their garage with you, which is really important. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's definitely standing on the shoulders of giants. There's a lot of people that came before me that that certainly, you know, contributed to where we are today. I mean, you guys included. I mean, it's, uh, it's amazing to me to look at all of the different resources we've been able to leverage throughout the last decade. And, and I mean, there's no way that Wes would have done what he did without some of your help. So it's just, it's just awesome to have this community of people that are 
in the fight with us. It is a long game. I mean, you and I share coaching DNA with Jim Schmitz, and that's all you need to know, right? I mean, people don't realize what a small community this is. Something I want to just circle back to is here you are. We, we were just talking with Stu McMillan of Altus Track and Field, who is one of the most accomplished Olympic coaches, sprints coaches on the planet. He really has had to grow as a coach to be the leader of the organization and still coach. Because if if you actually pull Stu completely out, some of the DNA gets lost and some of the secret sauce gets lost. You are still coaching athletes, even though you're the CEO of this gigantic organization. How do you balance that? It's very difficult. And I think the athletes do sometimes suffer. Just they don't have a day-to-day, you know, I watch every lift type relationship with me. They know that they have to be accountable to do a lot of this work unsupervised or leverage, you know, their teammates. And so they know I'll bring the ecosystem to bear. They know I'll bring all the recovery and regeneration and all of the different therapies and all the different resources from nutrition to supplementation, all the things you need to be successful. But definitely there is a part of me that wish I could devote more time. But between being on the field with my guys and coaching sprints for the the 40, you know, you know, that's an amazingly important aspect of what we do being there in the in the gym coaching the Olympic lifts. I feel like if I couldn't do that, I wouldn't be happy. So I've got to still stay, you know, at least in touch for the time being with that day-to-day coaching. I'm not ready to give that up yet, but it is difficult. Stu and I talk a lot about personally is how do we continue to empower athletes to own more of their own experience, be responsible for the training. So they're not just, because when Dave Spitz, and I've been coached by Dave Spitz, when Dave Spitz is there, I can turn my brain off and just don't have to think. And that's really nice. But when Dave Spitz is not there, I have to do a lot more self-reflection and a lot more of the homework. Do you feel like that makes, I mean, I feel, I can understand you can, you know, lose the source and that can be detrimental, but do you feel like this potentially is an opportunity for athletes to be more in their program process? And I use example of Nick Gill of the All Blacks, who's told me, who's an old friend of ours, and has said that just towards the end of the week, there's very little coaching going on. The athletes understand the plan, and then they're the coaches are there for a resource, not just sort of the patriarchal model of you know dripping down and the athlete is a robot. Yeah, I think there's a lot to say about that. And this is something that I've done with my athletes. We have a technical model that each athlete understands. And we spend a lot of time up front working through that technical model with that specific athlete. And so as they kind of get pushed outside that model, because that's what training does, right? You, you're sore and you're not creating the same uh, shapes to quote you off the bottom or in the squat. Your your tension is, is assigned differently, uh, you know, in your accumulation phase versus like a realization phase. But they are always observing themselves to make sure that when they're outside that technical model, they have they have some resources to be able to put themselves back in, number one. And if they can't, then they bring me in. But we have this understanding, this base framework for what's expected. And so they're keeping themselves accountable for quality movement, even more so than I am. And then when they have a problem that they can't solve, that's when they say, all right, well, here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I've tried. What can I do to adjust this? So definitely enhances accountability. And I think that my weightlifters look better today technically than they than they ever have. And I think a lot of that speaks to the accountability function of, of the training now. I would like to myth bust the idea and concept that people who own gyms get to exercise all the time. 
So I'm going to start the question there. But what I want to know is you have three kids, you're running this business, you're growing a business, you're trying to stay connected to athletes directly, but really, you know, you probably have to spend a lot of time behind your computer actually making this thing go and keeping Be a coach, they said. See over the everyone's they said. head and managing employees and, you know, all the things that go with that. So how do you fit exercising or eating a vegetable or whatever practices that you do to stay somewhat healthy into this mix? Because again, contrary Hashtag to popular asking belief, for a friend. contrary to popular belief, like having, you know, a whole gym right at, at your fingertips does not always mean that it makes it easier. Yes. I think that is such a powerful question. And it's one of those for the longest time I didn't have an answer for. I was like, screw it. I have no time. So it's okay to be fat. It's okay to eat what I want and drink four nights a week. And you know what? I have kids and I have a business, so it's fine. At some point, my blood pressure was high. My gut was just like growing so big. I, I had the proverbial dicky do where my, my gut was poking out farther than my dicky do. And that was a big problem. And I mean, my face was just like epically huge. Like I just... I don't know how my wife put up with it for as long as she did. And so... Oh, she wasn't contractually obliged to stay married to you. Yeah. I'm like, like, what does it matter with you? You're a sadist. But anyway, I decided, you know what? Like, I am such a rule follower, spreadsheet guy. Like, I'm I'm a finance guy. So I wanted to... I always want to write programs and then follow the program. And because of the lifestyle that we all lead, like, I finally realized... I needed to divorce myself from that notion where I had to do everything on this list or uh, otherwise I was failing. And so I came up with this very simple tagline. You know what, Dave, just never do nothing. So if you, you don't always have to do everything, you just never do nothing. So, you know, if I write a conditioning workout and I get through two rounds instead of the four that I write, and I feel like I've got a decent workout, I pat myself on the back. I say, great job. Uh, You did it. And you kind of create these what now is from that book, Atomic Habits, you create these habits out of this strategy of keeping yourself accountable to just avoiding doing nothing at all costs. So it's very easy to do. It's easy to do. It's easy. It's easy to do. And I've just trademarked yeah. uh, Never Do Nothing, by the way. If, and, yeah, uh, you, yeah, it's too Obviously, late. it's mine well, now. We didn't call it Never Do Nothing, but when we, when our kids were really little, Kelly developed, and we've talked about it before, but this workout called the 10, 10, 10 at 10. Kelly's going to explain what it is because I always get some of the movements wrong. But I mean, that was basically our like Never Do Nothing plan with little kids. So it was like 10 calisthenics, 10 pull ups, 10 push ups, 10 whatever you want to do for 10 minutes at 10 p.m. <laughs> And that's <laughs> and definitely it, part of like the 10, never do nothing. And at 10, plan. 11, you were like, wow, I'm yeah. elite. Yeah, because we knew this we were like, what, we're not going to get in, like, like, we're not going to get in like multiple hours of <clears throat> really structured, amazing training. Like, we've got little kids and we're trying to grow a business. And we're just like, okay, we literally sometimes would have 10 minutes, but that is the still, like, we would try to never do nothing. And that's fine. Like, n- now we know, like, the only thing you really have to do is get your 10,000 steps in a day. Right. So if you get your 10, 10, I try 15, but if you get at least 10,000 steps in a day and you stand for 12 hours a day and you lift heavy things a handful of times a week and actually overcome some resistance, and then you just avoid processed food and maybe eat a reasonable amount of protein, fruits, and vegetables, you're going to be fine. Like it can be very simple. And so just lowering the bar, I think, is the first step for most of us super competitive people who have all of these other things going on. And then I always believe it's better to have a plan. Where does the keto CBD come into there? Like, how do I, (laughs) I don't understand. How do I, 
Uh, there's some hack in there. Where's the red red lights I taped to my body? That's so reasonable what you just said. As a athlete, coach, if don't listen to Dave as a super coach, think of him as CEO. And that is literally the recipe for living to be 100 and actually being able to serve your family and your friends again. Not to um, be a shameless self-promoter, but we're actually writing a book right now called Built to Move. And basically everything you listed in that list is a chapter in our book. And now Never Do Nothing is going to be its own chapter. <laughs> Just your face, Never Do Nothing. I love it. We cut you off. You were about to say something else. No, I mean, uh, you know what? I was 256 pounds and like just really grossly unhealthy and like for no reason other than I couldn't figure out how to structure a workout that I could accomplish. And so I still believe that it's always better to have a plan and then only do a part of it than to not have a plan at all. So if I have a great week now, it's like I'm addicted. I'm, I'm like, I really enjoy the feeling of working out. I really enjoy being back in the gym, the music, the camaraderie. There was something that was lost over the years where I just didn't have that desire to work out because I didn't enjoy it. But just swapping just a little bit of motivation for or discipline for motivation. So be disciplined, screw your motivation. And if it's just a little bit of discipline up front, that's great. And then, you know, it begets better and better habits over time. And uh, now I feel great. I'm, I've weaned myself off all my blood pressure and what gets measured gets managed. The more you focus on what you eat and learn about what you eat, the better you're going to be and do a little self-experimenting. It's, it's been fun. I'm, I'm reclaiming my fitness has been like that's been, I have a new program called the Ripped and Ready program that we are, are kicking butt with because it basically is the, it's what I do to, to stay in shape now at 45. I love it. I, I'm on the jacked and tan plan where I can, 50% of my score comes from the tan. So I don't have to be that jacked. I just have to be really tan. And then I can get like a 70%. Well, like we talked about, you're getting too jacked. Remember, you're getting too big. So like, how did we, how do we lean you out and keep you light? Yeah, because we're, we're like trying to become mountain bikers. So we spent like 15 years just crossfitting. And, and I, like, and I like, these, but I'm like, like I love to deadlift. I'm like, yeah. why am I deadlifting? Like, and then we walked it's like 240 pounds, like trying to mountain bike and kayak. Like, oh, geez. I'm the biggest kayaker in the we world. We watch all these so like great. Red Bull mountain biking races and Kelly and I are like, oh man, like we're stuck in the wrong body for the sport we love. <laughs> but you know. We hey, make it work. We're on the plan. Yeah. We're on the plan. That's all of us. Round peg, square hole. Go. One of the things that I, I want to just call out here is that you're saying, you know, being in the in the gym, the excitement, you almost as a coach have to go out and create a separate coaching unit, exercise unit. That's your own squad of training because you can't jump into your kids because they're too good and you want to coach. You almost have to have like part of your, your daily plan is like I'm, people are going to show up and work out with me. It's crazy. Like once you start doing it, that everybody wants to do what you're doing. Like, uh, uh, oh, can I work out with you today? Like, really? You want to do this old man workout? Well, I don't know if you've seen your abs lately, but your your athletes must be jealous by how strong you are and how ripped you are because you're like, hey, why am I on this this junk Olympic program that got me to the Olympics <laughs> when I could be on the ripped and ready program? Yeah, I'll still always be ugly though. The, anyway, so Dave, <laughs> tell us what you are living for, looking forward to in the next you know six months, year. What are you excited about? I'm super excited about this whole new facility that we're building in Los Gatos. Alongside this beautiful club, we have another Cal Strength, which is uh, about a thousand feet from here. I think that with the combine moving from Indianapolis to potentially SoFi Stadium in LA, we are going to experience a huge influx in athletes and, and opportunities. I'm super excited about uh, the 
Olympic lifting journey. So starting at the world championships this year, we'll be able to accumulate points for the Olympics. So moving our next Olympian into pole position to, to represent this country. And I am super excited to continue to watch my kids develop and grow. I think I mentioned like my oldest daughter is, I've never seen her more ecstatic about a sport than water polo. When she gets out of the pool, the smile on her face is so infectious. I'm super fired up to watch her progress in water polo. My other two have their their sports, but coming back from the Olympics and being able to talk to these female water polo players, I was just so impressed with everything that they were in terms of humility, personality, uh, just kindness. You could just feel their, their positive interactions with every other athlete. And when I got home, I think I, I called Kelly and I was like, hey, this is this is what I experienced because I knew that Gabby uh, was doing water polo. And I think we both concluded that the buy-in is so freaking high for that sport in particular that it weeds out the crappy girls. Like there's no mean girls in the pool. There's only like teamwork and this is hard. I think it also weeds out the crazy parenting that is so common in youth sports now, no too. Because no parent can play water none polo. None of us can play it. And in fact, I don't care. You know, I'm probably like 70 water polo games in watching. And like, I do now understand the sport slightly better. And I think sometimes I understand like, oh, okay, some kid swam over another kid. And like, there's some things I'm actually starting to understand. But I will never understand what the refs are seeing and what's going on underneath the water. And I think that also really does actually help the parents. Like, we all sit there on the edge and are like, well, we couldn't do that. Like, we couldn't even begin to do what they're doing. So like we can't, it sort of saves us from our worst instincts I, of trying to coach our kids. And I have one quick overlap story. You called me, we were texting from the Olympics and you were saying, I just met Maddie Musselman, who is MVP. And she's like one of the kindest, most incredible, fiercest competitor athletes, women I've ever met. Like you were just kind of, you know, gobsmacked by how amazing this. So Caroline goes to the uh, an Olympic development program at Caro Springs over the break. It's just this fun camp. And she gets, she call, we call her that night and she's like, man, there was this girl in the pool. I couldn't stop her. Like she was skipping up into the corners and she's just, it was so fast. And then she was like, man, it was just so tough. And then later on, she's like, that girl, I think her name is Maddie Musselman. But Caroline had no idea. So <laughs> Maddie Musselman is shooting on, you know, she's a goalie. Maddie Musselman is shooting on her, you know, MVP of the gold medal Olympic team. And Caroline had like at the time, while well, she was being shot on by her, had no idea. Her little, little 13 year old mind was like, wow. I mean, this girl's really good. Like, I've never experienced this before. And then she actually did block one of her shots and she took a photo of her forearm, which we still have because so her forearm just looks like totally red. And I was warped. like, well, kid, yeah. now you know what the top of the... I mean, that's as hard as it gets. So yeah, but I love that she... I love her more now that she didn't even take it easy on the 13-year-old. She was firing balls. <laughs> Yeah, just firing them at Caroline. Like, yeah, just firing them at the goalie. And, and like, Caroline's like, wow, this coach is, like, really impressive. So, anyway, we were excited to tell you that story. Dave, so. where can people find about your programming if they're curious, they're barbell curious? Yeah, I mean, how can in? all the, like, the how can all the middle-aged people that we know become ripped and ready, too? Yeah, well, I mean, the California Strength website is the best resource, californiastrength.com, and you can find all of the programs there. And give us a follow on Instagram at cal underscore strength. And uh, that's we're easy to find. We're not hiding. What about on TikTok? Oh yeah, Are well, there's a TikTok? California strength on TikTok. There's a Cal strength on okay, TikTok. Just making sure. Yep, yep, yep. That's you know it. Uh, we will be down hanging out. Uh, you Field know, trip. I haven't power cleaned more than two seventy five on this fake knee. I, I think I can power clean three hundred on it. So do you really need to? Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Thanks. It was Dave. so fun to talk to you. Thank you guys. I uh, love and adore you guys both, and think that uh, you guys are 
the pioneers in the war on mediocrity. And I am just a, a humble servant. So I appreciate everything you guys do and I always have. And uh, I'm grateful for your friendship. And that's it. We'll see Ditto. you soon. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it.